Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Greg Bendian, and today I am really pleased to be joined by someone that I view to be an elder statesman of jazz, and he is a pianist, a composer, an arranger. He's an author. He's a music conceptualist. And I was very happy to set, spend several hours with our guest about uh, a couple of years ago in, in his home discussing his life for the oral history of American music at Yale. And we really got into some concepts there. So I know today we're gonna get into some areas as well. <laughs> but he, he's with me today and uh, I'm so pleased to welcome Hal Galper. Hi, Hal. How you doing, man? Good to see you. Nice to see you. You're looking well. Ah, oh, man. Well, you know, feel like a hundred bucks. <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll take that in the current yeah, economy. Yeah. I think that's pretty good. Yeah. 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 Uh, no, I'm okay. We've been as of April. Uh, we'll have sheltered in place for a year. So. Right. Uh, that's yeah. Weird. Yeah. But um, all is well. We're holding on. Luckily, I have a big house. You saw it. Yeah. But we have a, you know, a lot of privacy. Beautiful Victorian. Yeah, yeah. We have a lot of privacy if, if we need it, you know. Well, it's good because we have a similar situation in New Jersey where I am. And there's a, there's a quiet and there's a sort of uh, presence of nature. I think it's such a big part of, of staying together as a creative person, as a sensitive person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what are you, what's, what's on your mind today? I have a few questions for you, Hal Galper. You know, you're a very interesting figure in the music. And uh, I know a, a bit about your pr different projects. And so it's, it's difficult for me to choose where to start. But there's a, been a sort of through line in a bunch of these podcasts that I've been doing recently with certain interesting cats that I don't think get talked about enough. And I know that you had some contact with Jackie Byard. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I had uh, 18 lessons with him. This was, uh, he was teaching as a, he wasn't part of the Berkeley at the time, but uh, I had 18 lessons with him. My first lesson, he had a little studio down the street from, from Berkeley. And, uh, <clears throat> My first lesson uh, was very stimulating. Uh, and then as I was leaving, um, there were two doors I had to choose from to leave. I'd never been to his place before. So I, I was leaving and I opened up a door and all these scores of J Jackie's, it was a closet full of his scores. They all came spilling out and string quartets, brass uh, 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 strings. I, amazing stuff that he had written that probably nobody ever played. So I started off being embarrassed right away with Jackie, but he was, he was a great guy. I had 18 lessons with him and I learned, probably I learned the most from him of any teacher I had. And the funny thing was when I went back and looked at my notebooks, I didn't have anything in them. I had no notes because the way he taught and, and, and I kind of borrowed his technique. The way he taught was he got you excited. He got your brain going. And when you left his place, you were thinking about all kinds of stuff. 
that you never thought about before. And, you're, and of course, you're thinking Jackie showed it to you, but actually you're, you're, you're asking the questions yourself, you know? Um, he got, he, what he did was he swung you. You know, he'd get on the drums. He could play any instrument. He'd get on drums or he'd play alto or tenor or whatever. And they show me a couple of voicings and this and that. Nothing really uh, coordinated, you know. It was all at the moment. But boy, I left his, I left his lessons like thinking I, he had taught me all kinds of stuff. But really, he had just stimulated my mind. So I use that technique now when I'm teaching. I, get, I try to get the my students excited and stimulated and so that they leave the lesson, you know, thinking, getting their brain going, you know. It's so important to be dynamic, isn't it? Yeah, well, the best teachers are, are, are what, what do they call them now? Uh, charismatic teachers. My, 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 my teachers, the masters, they were all charismatic and they all had awe. And, and that's a basic ingredient of a master you're not going to respect them unless you consider them awesome. And they have, they have, <laughs> I was thinking back the other day, I was doing another interview in it. I don't know if I mentioned it the last time. None of, I don't think I ever initiated a conversation with any of the masters that I played with. I waited for them to say something, you know, uh, because they were on another level. You know, how come I, there were so many levels above me, how could I, anything I could be interested in relate to anything they're interested in because they're on another level. So uh, I think that's an important, I probably one of the most important aspects is your master has to uh, have awe. You're not going to learn anything. You're not going to respect them until they've like beaten you up. You know what I mean? And all the masters I had, they did that. They did that for sure. So, um, Hal, did you know that I played in Cecil Taylor's trio for a while? No, I didn't know that. No, I guess what, I never. What do you play? I'm a drummer. Oh. Yeah, percussionist. Uh -huh. So in the late 80s, I had been a fan of his since I was a teenager. And the, in the late 80s, well, early 80s, I was studying with Andrew Sorrell and Steve McCall. I was getting inside the music. Uh, and then, uh, you know, going to all the concerts and really feeling like the direction was to go. Well, you've heard my trio. I know that. You, we talked about the conception of rhythm that we both share an interest in and the idea of rubato and the idea of a metric modulation. Well, you know, Cecil Taylor, was aware of the, the Carter stuff. He was aware of, of, you know, advanced rhythmic stuff that came from contemporary classical, not necessarily from jazz. And he was very comfortable with me being influenced by contemporary percussion, as well as being interested in the free jazz thing. So, so this, this idea of having it seemingly free in terms of rhythm but in other ways being really worked on in terms of perception, hearing of rhythm, hearing, uh, imposing durations in different ways on the rhythm, right? It could be a clave as a sort of an imposed durational structure. Yes. Or it could be uh, uh, freely associating with a group of pitches. All of these levels of free, I, I know 
you've explored them and, and my generation then has been influenced by the way you guys have conceptualized and continue to this day, because I want to do also talk with you about uh, forward motion. Okay. Okay, but but to this to this case, do you feel that your group and I heard a great recording today of uh, Rapunzel's luncheonette. I think it's a great example of what we're talking about, wouldn't you say? In, in, in what way? In what manner? In the way that the, the the freedom to rhythm is approached, but it's approached and people are listening, and you have multiple subdivisions of rhythm going on in a trio. Right. The question being. Do you feel like that is something that you have made a central concept in your music and where did it come from? Um, well, you. That's a good question. And I think I have an answer for it. Um, you know, I, 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 uh, I don't practice very much uh, unless I have a specific uh, musical goal in mind. Uh, you know, so I, I like avoid practicing. I do everything I can to avoid practicing all day long until like it gets to be about midnight and I like watch the TV shows. I've read something. I'm listening to some music. I'm always? Were you always that way? Yeah. So so uh, it kind of, I guess to be around midnight, you know, I, I'm sitting there. Well, what do I do now? You know, I thought, oh, let me go play the piano. <laughs> So I don't do that until I run out of every possible excuse to avoid practicing. Yeah. <clears throat> so and I, I, I'm at the piano one night and, and I started playing and this came up. And I thought, gee, this, this feels right. Uh, but I'm not going to ever find anybody to play this with me. You know, uh, um, it's a long story. I, I don't know if I can make it short or not. So I called uh, Tony Marino, who uh, recorded the, was with me recording the first uh, Roboto album I did, which is really nice. Tony Marino and Billy Mintz. So uh, I called Tony. We did a duo gig at the Deerhead Inn in, in uh, Delaware Water Gap. And uh, it was an elderly crowd. I was really concerned that this would be, uh, nobody would like it. Of course, Tony is a free player in Beboppers clothing, and he can do anything you you put in front of him. You know, he's like symphony level bass player. So we played this a duo, and and the people liked it. You know, and and Tony was right there with me. He was a great follower. You know, so I was surprised. But at the time, I'm thinking I'll never find a drummer to get, to be able to play this music with me. But I I heard Billy Mintz on one of uh, Jeff Johnson's, my bass player's recording. And Billy was in New York, so I called Billy. Uh, and we played together, and, and it was just you know, just perfect match. Just perfect. I didn't have to say anything. I didn't have to tell anybody anything. Uh, so I got into it. But then after a while, I realized, you know, I had always played this way because I get bored really easy when I'm playing. And if I get bored, whenever I get bored, I take it out. And it's, I've always done it, uh, but not as a thing in itself, you know. It's I, always I, been an option. Yeah, yeah. And I, I generally use it when I get really bored and I just say, fuck it, you know, and go out. But I kept my place, you know. 
So, uh, and you don't go willy nilly, but you but going out means what? Um, well, playing rubato, keeping the tempo, playing and going outside harmonically and rhythmically, subdividing, superimposing them, you know, the whole thing. Um, so, uh, that's that's how it came about, you know, it's like by accident. And you know, I, I thought back. I thought back. You know, I was hanging out with Jim, Richie Byron years ago, maybe in the '60s, and his loft. And he was one of the few piano players that we could, you know, get together and exchange ideas and stuff. You know, so I, I played some broken time lines, and he 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 got all excited and he said, "Hal, that's your shit, man. That's your <laughs> shit." You know, I said, "Ah, and, you know, I said, nah, okay, you know, really, yeah." That was like in the 60s, you know. That's interesting. <laughs> wow. Because early free playing, like you got to decide what are you going to do, right? <laughs> and especially piano players, you have a lot of control. I think horn players were really up against the issue. Or are they going to go squeaky bonk? Or are they going to play some like Jimmy Lyons would be like such a post bird player, you know? Mm -hmm. He wasn't that kind of player. But there were so many interesting choices that were being made at that time. And you're a great example of a person who never decided that there was one thing was better than another was better than another. Right. And that you wanted all the options. Yeah. But I never considered it as a, as a, as a thing in itself, you know, that, and, uh, it's an element. Yeah. Uh, but, but that one night when, uh, when I first made first started to play it, um, uh, you know, and, and I didn't know what I didn't know exactly. I couldn't really define what I was doing really well. I actually, uh, it's the old oral tradition technique. I the music taught me, and at, the more we played it with Jeff and John, with my trio, it, the music took us. We didn't impose ourselves on it. We didn't play with intention. We just tried to keep ourselves open and see where the music took us. Um, and we finally reached the, the uh, height of that with Eric uh, and Revisited, that album. We, we've all snapped into the zone immediately on that album. Uh, and that was, that was quite a change for us. The thing was, we would take a break. I'd, we'd be on the road and we'd take a couple of months off. And we'd come back and we didn't start off where we left off. We were ahead of where we left off when we started up. I, I can't explain it, you know. But it really took us for a trip, you know. Um, perfect example of, of, of one of the aspects of the oral tradition and how it works, which is uh, uh, um, something I'm, I'm working on now. It's a very difficult. It's been a very difficult article for me because uh, I didn't wasn't sure how to approach it. But now I've got a good idea how to how to. I'm I'm really a firm, such a firm believer in the oral tradition, the apprenticeship system. Um, and and it, and the fact that it should be included in curriculum, but the curriculum isn't set up that way, and it could be a part of the curriculum, except those who are invested in teaching information as opposed to process, you can't sell process. You can't make money from process. <laughs> you can from information. You know. So. Uh, uh, it it was. Uh, Trust in my trust, having trust in your intuition was the, the bottom line. 
You know, a lot of musicians don't trust it. They're afraid to let go of their ego and let it happen. I, um, but I think uh, we all trust that our intuitions, we, that's the machine that we use to play anyway. You know, so you have to gain confidence in your ability to just jump off the ledge. You know, John McLaughlin said to me, I just try to get out of the way. Yeah. And let it happen. Yeah. Get out of the way of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And that zone that, that you mentioned, I know that you've written about it and, and it's a very important concept, something that has, has been throughout my life being somewhat at one hand a DVD, but also a DVD, yeah, ADD, but also hyper-focused and having that ability to go for, as a, from a teenager to go into the zone. And that became a part of practice. It became a part of listening to music, experiencing art throughout my whole life. And then it became a very useful tool in creating from nothing and from no assumptions and to be able to play free. Right. And when, when I played with the guys that where it was free, I found that it was free, but you were, it was cool if you used your vocabulary. It was cool if you had your language and you're putting your language into space with the other people. And there was a collaboration to it. There was some yeah. meeting to it, right? Isn't I, that the fun of it? Yes, but I always felt that the, the free music at that period lacked. I, I didn't think I didn't sense the concern, uh, the a sense a willingness to communicate to a, an audience. I, I thought it was very self-involved, and I think it, uh, you know we're, we're kind of talking about presentation here. That's interesting. And if you have to consider, nobody teaches presentation anymore. They don't even think about it. But presentation is, is the aspect that involves the audience. You basically were kind of like psychologists. And once and we try to hook up emotionally, all, both audience and artist vulnerable and, and get that thing going, you know. Um, pull me back. I, I kind of. How do you feel that? that Tony Williams came across to audiences? Oh, he killed, always. But he in his most case. wild phase, were you interested in what he was doing with groups like Lifetime? Uh, well, he asked me to join the band. When? Well, when I was, when he was, we were recording Now Hear This, and uh, I, uh, what's his name, his organ player just passed away. And, uh, Tony asked me, uh, you know, we came up together. Yes, I know. That's why I'm, I wanted reference. Yeah, uh, Tony asked me to join his, his group, but it had to be on liquid piano. And I had made a commitment never to play another electric keyboard again. So, so I, your last electric stuff was with Cannonball? Yep. That was the final? Yep. Interesting. So did you so dislike the electric instrument in Cannonball's group? Well, I liked it. Look, I, when I was playing with Stan Guest before that, I was playing electric piano and I was using, a, um, I forget who, I, I was on tour with Donald Byrd somewhere, way back when, down south uh, at a college. And uh, there was a, a, a funk band there called Coke. And the leader of the band, we, we hung out, kind of hung out on intermission. He said, Hal, you want to hear a sign with the Fender Rose? He said, 
get a Leslie organ speaker. So I got one. I found one cheap, you know, and I got one. And this was before they invented the phase shifter. So I was, that was a great sound. And you can hear it on Wild Bird and, and the Gorilla Band. That's what I'm using. Oh, wow. That's hip. That's so hip. Yeah, yeah. Because you, you didn't, you were the one that did that. Chick wasn't doing that, right? Chick had the roto sound. Chick had, uh, what did he have? Like, uh, and Keith. Suitcase long here, I think. Oh, right. But but everyone was processing the electric piano. Jan was processing the electric piano. So, but the feel of it was better than, say, a Wurlitzer, right? Yeah. Although I kind of love, I kind of, these days, I kind of enjoy the, the the sound of that Wurlitzer when it was ugly. I used to be ugly, but now it's not so ugly. It's kind of charming. You know. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. Yeah. 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 But I, I, so I was into it uh, when I was with Stan. Uh, and, but the, what I came to the realization was that uh, I was not happy with the state of my chops. And I could play easier on the electric piano. So I was, and I realized after Cannonball, I said, man, don't bullshit yourself. You know, um, you're avoiding playing the piano and your responsibility to your instrument. This I'm talking to myself now. And I had to make a commitment. Uh, I thought, I've got to be, look, I, I, I should be able to get anything out of the acoustic piano. I can get out of the electric piano. I just got to work hard and get it, you know? So I had to make a commitment to, to, to playing acoustic and not get away from it because I had to get my chops together, you know? Uh, I was not comfortable. It was my kind of, I hadn't been working enough to get them together in the early days and uh, not practicing enough and all that stuff. So I, I really had to get back and honor my instrument, if you will, and to accept responsibility for it and, and do the work. You know? So I went into the shed and uh, uh, that's when I, I was working on the pentatonics. So uh, that time, and uh, that's when Now Here This came out. That's probably one of the, the better pentatonic albums I made. I think the two with Schofield, I was at my my best in terms, I have finally worked it out, not just played patterns, but actually played melodic phrases, you know. That's interesting. Um, I want to talk about that period, but could we talk about the Cannonball period just a little bit before we move on? Sure. I'm really kind of in, in a really, uh, tender spot with love sex and the zodiac uh, it just it speaks to to such a time in my childhood where that was the thing you know and what your what's your sign and the zodiac and following your 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 horoscope and that's so built into it did you have fun making that record uh because you have two tunes on that record yeah i do i do i have a real nice possible unfortunately on that record i had to give up like a lot of my publishing rights, the Rick Holmes was involved and all that. So uh, all the all the other tunes I recorded with Cannonball, I, I maintained control over. But a really nice bossa nova that was on there. And then there was a, a nice funk thing, you know. But yeah. what, what happened was we made up the stuff in the studio. And we do, one of the tracks is a free track, you know. So, so we're playing. We stopped playing free, you know, and it's this great free track. So when it was over, Cannon says, uh, you want to play that back? 
And the guy in the studio said, oh, I thought you guys were just warming up. He didn't record it. Oh. So we had to do a second take. And you know how a second takes off. Yeah. 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 But we were making the stuff up. At, I brought uh, the Boston Over I had written before. The funk thing I almost made up on the spot, you know. Well, the, the boss also has a really nice contrary motion thing going on yeah, yeah. In, in the, uh, what is it, the, the, the B of that? Yeah. It's, it's well, like that, beat, that beat got copied, and I made, I made a lot of money for it, because uh, a tribe called Quest, they, <sighs> they took the rhythm from the van, and they made a song out of it, and I found out about it. That's a uh, cool, see, that is a cool record for you. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, ah, nobody ever asked you about that record. Right? Oh, well, yeah, right. <laughs> I never well, talk about it. That's interesting, Hal. Yeah. So uh, uh, they had Walmart refused to, I forget, no, it wasn't Walmart. The stores, because of the cover, the stores didn't want it. It was a very salacious cover, you know. Well, for, it was recorded in 70. Yeah. But it wasn't released until 1974. Yeah. And it's sort of at the height of that that whole era in a way, you know, before it switches over. Well, to... the 70s were were sorry. The 70s were a a vital time, you know. You can just wait. We'll we'll edit that. Uh the 70s were were a reaction to the 60s. The freedom of the 60s, uh, and, and I, which gets to the point that I was going to make before we got onto this cannonball thing, I, I, with presentation. Presentation has to do with to what degree do you control the music? What's, what control factors are you employing to make the music sound logical? And I thought that was one of the weaknesses of, of the free moon in the beginning. There was not an, there were all kinds of structures. I mean, with Sam, we used to play uh, E anything. Sam Rivers. Yeah, we play E anything, you know. And then once we were done with that, I say, uh, you know, Sam, what do you want to play next? He says, how about C anything? Okay, you know. Uh, so the structure there was one note, you know. But then you take it to the other end where Wayne Shorter in his early days, he wrote, actually wrote out for the cast the scales he wanted him to use to get a specific sound. So this control factor can be like almost zero to maximum, you know, and I, and, and I think that's one of the things that was missing in the early free music. And I think why I gravitated to the rubato thing, keeping the tempo as an organizing factor, you know. However, the rubato thing is, isn't, uh, we don't listen to each other in terms of the rhythm. Uh, it's the harmony as a guide now, because what we're doing is we're stretching how long or, sh or not we want to play on each chord. So as long as we're keeping the rhythm and we can all hear the changes, we can do whatever we want because we're letting the harmony be the guide, not the melody and not the rhythm. Um, and of course, Jeff and John fell in with that just right away. And so I could do anything I wanted. It didn't make any difference with these guys, you know. They would follow me anywhere. I think it, I think so. I think the rubato had a little more impact because it was on tunes, you know, and it was in tempo. You know. 
it seemed to me like that Tony Williams was an ideal drummer in the original moments of that sort of conception of rhythm. Is that we were playing that way with Sam? You know, free on, I was on. playing free on tunes before Sam came back to town. I'm and sorry, say that again. I was playing free on tunes before Sam came back to Boston. Um, and so when we when we hooked up, it was like a, you know love at first sight, you know. Um, but a lot of people were uh, were having problems with me. <laughs> John Nebs walked off the bandstand one night in the middle of the tune, holding his ears, saying, "You're giving me a headache," you know. <laughs> From what but, you were playing? Yeah, yeah, in the middle of the song. What were you overplaying? Probably. Or I was just playing free, you know, on tunes. I used to just, I used to experiment. I, I experiment with getting lost. I loved getting lost. It's, oh, it, it opened everything up and it was just, you just reacted to what you heard, you know. But it was another point of view, you know, another perception of the music it offered, you know. So I'm, I'm looking at as many possible conceptions that I can find, you know. And I mentioned that to Cannibal, and that said, well, don't do that on this band. You know? <laughs> so did Cannonball have a really great presentation? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He had that done. How yeah. many years did you did you work with him? A little over two years. And I left about nine months before he had, that I had a stroke. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. He, he was, I could see it was coming. I didn't want to be around. Yeah. Did Cannonball get along with Phil Woods? Yeah, of course. Phil just idolized him. Are you kidding? So, yeah. I had a, um, we played a club with Cannon in Philadelphia called Just Jazz, I think it was called. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. It was on the second floor. We, um, and we played there a week. Uh, and someone came and, and, and had recorded the whole week and sent me the, the uh, cassettes. Uh, Phil loved Ken and he went and I lent him the, 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 uh, the whole week's work, you know. And then he had the fire in his house and they got all burnt up. And I thought, man, that, all of that is lost. But quite a few, a few years later, I, the guy who had originally taped the contact me and I guess he had burned them all the CD and he sent me the CDs. And now they're online, you know, some, so I found them online as well. Um, a lot of the thung, uh, things are, the tunes aren't, aren't listed on what I have and everything. So I can go over that someday, but I have all of that. Um, and, and I feel just love Cannibal, you know. So when I got the CDs, I, uh, I let Phil, I, I downloaded them and sent them to Phil. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. He loved it. You know, I also did Phil's oral history for Yale. Huh? I also did Phil Wood's oral history for the Yale oral history. Ah, yeah, yeah. Toward toward the end of his time, yeah. 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 He he um he's an important figure in the music. Uh but you know, Sam Rivers, I think, is is someone that's not discussed enough. He's an interesting guy. Very much so. He's a genius. He was a way ahead of everyone. Miles couldn't make up his mind about it when he was playing with him. I heard Miles was going in in the audience and asking people what they thought of Sam. You know, and uh, Sam, unfortunately, he had he would be subject to stage fright. So, 
So when he, he was with Miles, he didn't sound like the way he played. You look at the way he sounds on, on the quartet album we did, A New Conception, where he was really relaxed, you know. And then the way he played on uh, the Japan recordings, you know, with Miles. But you let's could, talk about New Conception. That that's a that's really important. 1966 Blue Note, right? Yeah. So was it a New Conception, Hal Galper? Yeah. Which was, was what? Playing free on tunes. We, we were just setting up, and and uh, we were playing free on tunes. And everybody, the reaction generally among uh, among our peers is that was kind of like the first instance of that happening. But what happened was that Tony took that concept and brought it to Miles's band. And that's that is something that happened right at that time. You yeah. are so correct. Yes, yes. So we, we, Sam's Quartet invented it and Tony brought it to Miles. And that's how it sure did. Yeah. And oh, then that's we're, heavy. Yeah. Right. Because the, the Massachusetts thing is, is no small thing, right? No, it isn't. Yeah. There's a whole yeah. bunch of stuff going on there. Yeah, yeah. No jazz society in Boston, if you can imagine that. <laughs> One of the most major, almost all of Duke's band was from Boston area. Woody Herman's band was almost all Boston cats for many years. Uh, Stan Kenton's band. I mean, um, it was a music town, you know, with Berkeley there. You know. Yeah, I remember Riles. Huh? Riles, yeah, I got some recordings of us at Riles. Yeah, I played at Riles a few times. And uh, back to Sam, though, I've got a, like a WGBH uh, TV thing we did with Father O'Connor, where he plays just, you know, it's just beautiful, relaxed. You know, when he was relaxed, it was just phenomenal. You know? And was he doing multiple reads? Mm, at once? Well, he played flute. And soprano. Is that was, what you're asking me? Yeah, was he playing flute and soprano? Huh? Anything other than flute and soprano? Uh, and tenor sax. That was it. Tenor, and yeah. He was also a great piano player. It, it drove me nuts the way he played. I, he was a good piano player, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah. Drove me nuts. Hated him for that. So what were his conceptions that was that that sort of influenced you and vice versa? We are, well, not so much that he influenced me. We were both, we were both the same. We we both hated most everything we heard. Uh, we terribly elitist, you know, picky, uh, hypercritical. I mean, we were like as if we came out of. We didn't have to adjust to each other or anything. It's just two like minds, you know. And I mean, <laughs> it was, it was like it was like. And fit together like cogs in a wheel, you know. Uh, there was no, there was never any problem with, with uh, between Sam and I. We communicated beautifully, you know. It was my postgraduate work, six years. And who else is on those bands? Well, I started out with Tony, and then he left for New York, and then Peter Lipman played with us for quite a while. Chess old drummer. Peter was an incredible drummer. Hmm. Uh, what a beat he had. He's the one that taught me about uh, gears, you know, using gears. Because we were having, we were playing, we would play Monday nights someplace at the stables. 
And I said, yeah, yeah, Peter, I can play three years, up to three years. He says, oh, no, hell, there's six years. I said, really? He said, yeah, I'll show you. So the next step, we got up there. We started in gear one, you know, and then at the appropriate time, you know, we went to gear two, you know, and then uh, I was really working hard at that point. And then we went to gear three, and I'm putting it all out, you know. Next thing I know, he's in gear four pounding me into the ground and then he goes to five my arms tightened up my shoulders were up high my arms were getting heavy i was aching uh, and then he and we, he went up to six and i had to stop playing i had to stop i couldn't just couldn't do it there really are six yeah well he did it yeah he did it he did it oh wow i couldn't play at that level at least at that time, you know. Could Rashid Ali? Oh, yeah. He had a big beat. He had a big beat. He could play there, right? Oh, man. He played exactly the way I heard it in my head when it came to Roboto. Exactly the way I heard it. Anyway. Do you remember with him with Coltrane? Yes, of course. Are you kidding? I recorded with Coltrane's rhythm section. Reggie Workman and Rashid Ali. You've got to be kidding. No, I know that, ah. but, but but I'm wondering when that stuff's happening with Coltrane, what is that in your consciousness of Coltrane going free, free or to a lot of people, pe people saying he lost his way or maybe lost his mind? What was going on? Tell us at that time on the ground, Hal. Do you remember? Well, yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, uh, well, you know, Elvin hated, hated having Rashid and, and he left. So you remember that transition? Yeah, I thought it was great. Did you see them together, by the way? No, no, I only saw Coltrane for a second when I was hiding out in Pennsylvania and in Philadelphia once. I had a, don't ask. Yeah. Uh, but I, I did hear them in a club there for like a minute and then I left, you know, I, I didn't really hear it. But um, my connection with it was I, at the period, at the time where we, I finally met him, uh, and Reggie I'd, I'd known since the 60s. We used to play Bradley's duo at Bradley's when they had uh, Fender Rose there. Before of course, they got yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, we, we'd known each other a long time. Uh, but for that album that we did, the live album, uh, I've been, up until that point, I've been doing a lot of Coltrane research because he never talked about how he practiced and what he worked on, you know? So I, I was trying to, there was, he never talked about his playing, never. As far did as you, I- Did you talk, ever talk to Paul Jeffries about that? No. Because no. Paul practiced with him. Uh, I didn't know that. Had I known, I would have. Paul was my uh, jazz director when I was a student at Rutgers in uh, 80, 82, 83. I, uh, Paul and I knew each other quite well. Yeah, Paul was wonderful. Anyway, that was that album uh, um, artwork that was my summation of the research I'd done on Armin. I mean, on on uh, Coltrane. You know. uh, I did find someone sent me a long two-hour interview of, of Coltrane done in Denmark or something, and the guy who was interviewing was a real asshole. He spent the first half all talking about race, which Coltrane did not want to talk about. You know, he just wasn't that kind of guy. He was a very, very impressive person as, as a man at, 
very impressive. You get, he, he had all, he was one of those giants. He was different, like Dizzy was different. Um, and at the end, you know, the guy says, well, what are you working on these days? He says, well, not anything specific, but uh, you know, when I don't have anything specific to work on, I just work on, um, uh, oh shit, uh, cells and shape. Bingo. I uh, my analysis was that's what he was working on. You know, I think that you're right. And so, so I I got a chance to prove it with that album. You know, and that oh, that's so cool. And and what was it like for you uh, as a pianist listening to Alice Coltrane play that later period Coltrane? Uh, I didn't. You know, once I I didn't get on that period in that period I didn't listen to him that much. Then I wasn't that much interested in in figuring him out. I had other stuff going on. So and uh, I'd already made my own decisions about free playing by that time, what it requires. And uh, you know, people people told me if you keep up with this bravado shit, you're going to lose your audience. You know, and which they accuse what happened to Train. He lost half of his audience by the change into free music. But he got another new half, you know, of people. Did he though? Yeah, uh, sold a hundred thousand pieces of a Love Supreme, hundred thousand records. That was that was a while ago. It's probably more now, you know. Right? Oh, it, yeah, no, it's a perennial. Yeah, but it, but our our records like Ascension or uh, Interstellar Space or Expression, are they the same kind of sellers? I just wonder because you talk, you mentioned presentation and. When we came after you guys and, and things even got more conservative, uh, we were just trying to go more um, personal and be more into what we were trying to do because it didn't benefit to try to be part of any particular school. So when I talk about Paul Jeffries and the, the, the group coming out of Rutgers, that's Terrence Blanchard and the, the new Lions, oh, the yeah. Lions thing that I wasn't really interested in. I was interested in like Paul Motion. You know, so I came up in, in a period where the young guys were going more conservative and away from that. And you probably remember that moment where, you know, the major jazz labels were embracing the new traditional stuff. Amazing. That, yeah. Go ahead. But just that, that that was also a disappointment for me because I was more interested in a guy who I think it was a wonderful free player uh, with multiple layers of rhythm was Paul Motion. Oh yeah. Yep. Did you ever play with him? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's quite a story though. Um, Bill Evans was at the jazz workshop in town in Boston. Okay. Two, two weeks. When? I was there every night. Because I never really studied Bill. I stayed away from him because when I first heard him, I thought, Jesus, we're on the same track here. Kind of, I kind of felt a similarity. I'm staying away from him because everybody's going to think I was influenced by Bill Evans. They still do, but I never copied him. You know, I was just, it's just a, an inclination where we're similar. So he was there two weeks. His hands were all messed up. He was shooting up in his fingers. He had two paralyzed fingers on his right hand. He played like maybe like 15 songs a set. 
short songs. And it was just, you know, stunning. It never made a mistake. The last night, last set, he comes to me, he says, Hal, I'm, I'm, out of, I'm out of stuff. He says, I got to go get caught. You know, can you play the last set for me? And I said, sure, man. Oh, my God. Never set in for a master. <laughs> I it was Paul and uh, Paul and and Gary Peacock were playing. Wow! And they all knew me, right? So yeah. I started. I and I had been listening to Bill for two weeks, so his sound was in my head. I couldn't get it out. So when I started playing, I was sounding like somebody who was trying to sound like Bill, and the audience hated it. You know, and and, and Paul Paul says, "How?" In the middle of the song, he says. Play your own, play your own shit, you know, play your own shit. I said, I'm trying, I'm trying. I couldn't get the animosity coming from the audience is just hor- unbelievable. I <laughs> the lesson being never sung for a master. And you know? no good deed goes unpunished. Yeah, right. That was a horrible experience. But I, I knew Gary and, and Paul pretty well in the early days. Yeah. But they're important in terms of, as a listener, I know coming up, we were listening to Gary Peacock with Eiler. We were listening to Paul with, you know, his own thing, with his things with with Keith, you know, all these different important recordings. Oh, yeah. And they're, you know, that they're all defining rhythm in their own ways. Yeah. And we kind of thought, oh, we should come up with our way of defining rhythm. So I always felt like when we played free, there'd always be some sense of a pulse, if only evident to me. But but it would be something that would drive. That was one of, the, one of the control factors. And the presentation depends on how many control factors you want to use. You know. Speak to that. Well, like I said, it could be one note. Like Sam, we used to do with Sam, we played E anything. Where in Phil's band, uh, every, uh, you know, we had we had a, the chance to like work out the details on every arrangement. The arrangements always developed on the bandstand. So uh, the way I look at it is is we're in a good sense we're psychologists, and the where our job is to manipulate the audience emotionally. That's what they came for. They let themselves open. You should see my article on the social contract about the arrangement we make with the audience, the deal, you know. They paid a 10 bucks to get in and they pay for the privilege of letting them their egos go for, along with a hundred other people in a safe situation. You're all doing it together so it's safer. And we're doing the same thing, agreeing to be vulnerable. And, and, and they let us in, which is I consider a privilege, you know. Um, so this, uh, when they pay that $10, they've made an agreement to let us fuck with them, basically. And that's what we're supposed to do, to fuck with them emotionally. So presentation has, is for that. How do you want to emotionally affect your audience? What techniques do you want to use that, you know, like I said, when I'm playing, I get bored real easy. And uh, that's, that's when I'd start messing things up, you know, and playing free. Yeah. Let me ask you this. What what is your approach, though, when you work with great singers like you work with Joe Williams and Anita O'Day, Chet Baker? Oh, you did the job. 
And I happen to, I learned how to cough from great singers, you know. Tell me about that. Well, singers always sing the song the same way. Do they? Did they? In the well, ones I just named? that I knew, because the reason was you had to learn the way they sang it, and then you could make up your piano part. The drummer could make up his drum part. The bass player could make up his. So they sang it the same way all the time until you learned their phrasing, their spacing, their, their, their dynamics. And then the rhythm section had a chance to make up their parts and arrange them. So that was kind of a, an ethic for, for vocalists, at least at that time. So Joe Williams is in that camp? Uh, all of them, yeah. Anita O'Day? Yeah. I came. I, I worked with Jackie Paris and Anne Marie Moss for many, many years. They were incredible vocalists, I, and that's probably where I learned my eyes. I'm sitting in with Sarah. I learned a lot with with her. Um, but uh, uh, Jackie Paris is an incredible singer. Anne Marie Moss is an incredible singer. You had to watch her left hand because her left hand. People would think she was just making gestures in the air. Didn't have anything to do with anything. But you were watching her left hand for cues. She was directing the music. She had the mic in one hand, you know, and left hand be doing, you know, stuff like this. Or, what would those signals mean? You know, uh, 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 play softer, slow down, or, 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 you know, different things. You know, would she bring in sections? Would she? She knew the arrangements. No, no. What do you mean by that? I was mean, she conducting? Yes. Yeah, and I found a lot of singers after that. You had to watch their left hands because they were giving you cues about what they wanted you to do. You know? Okay, but what about your left hand? And I'm, this is what I mean. When you're on a gig with a singer, is it the job of the pianist to orchestrate? Yes. Well, I thought so. Some people didn't. Um, Who were your models for that? For company vocalists? Yeah. I didn't have any. Because I, uh, I didn't, in my early days in, in Boston, didn't play with any singers hardly at all. So I didn't have that experience until I got to New York City, playing with really good vocalists, you know. Uh, and that's when I started to learn more. You know. That's so cool. I mean, there are great accompanists, Tommy Flanagan, uh, you know, Hank Jones. Hank Jones is just incredible accompanist. Uh, you, you, you could there are there were a lot of good recordings you could use for you know resource you know how to talk. But I learned it uh, uh, under fire. You know, you know, Philly Joe is such an interesting figure in the music, and I recently saw that you were a fan of his quote. Uh, that it was, it's always been free. You're always free to play your right. solo the way you wanted to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and I've come across time and time again, like Sonny Rollins and, uh, you know, the older cats that are, that were just fine with any particular approach to the music, any way that they could engage the audience. There was experimenting, obviously there was searching you don't necessarily get that in pop music and rock music on the same level. No, but that's how pop and rock music has a different function. So, yeah. 
It's not the same. You know, jazz is supposed to stimulate something, and popular music is supposed to dull something. <laughs> ah, interesting. That's that's my definition. Philly Joe was was uh, uh, my favorite drummer. Um, uh, when uh, playing with Chet, um, I got a chance to pick my own rhythm section after a while, because when Chet came back from, from Italy after serving, in, he was in jail there in Italy, he was still, he had, the, the rhythm section, there was a, a revolution in the music, people were playing more on top of the beat. They weren't playing the laid back groove, which is my favorite groove. Uh, uh, was it because of cocaine? Yeah. Huh? Was it because of cocaine? No. Why was it? What was it coming from? That energy? Huh? Why do you think that that, that changed to be, it's to be sort of hyper or on top of things like that? Uh, I don't know. It was, you know, music reflects the culture of the moment. So you have to look at the culture to maybe come up with the answer for that. Um, but uh, we were playing at Shelley's Manhole and Philly Joe came in and sat in. And I, 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 I always wanted to play with Philly Joe. I couldn't wait. I was just hoping that maybe someday I'd ever get a chance to play with Philly Joe. So he came in, Steve, Steve Ellington was playing drums and he sat in for a set. And here he was, five feet away from me to my right, swinging his ass off, giving me nothing, nothing. I was hoping that he'd kick my ass and I'd get to play great, you know, and I'd be able to match his level and all that shit. He knew that. He sensed it, that I was riding on his coattails and he gave me nothing through the whole set. I couldn't believe it. No energy here. It was... He was sitting five feet away from me, just swigging furiously, and I got nothing from him. Okay. Did he look at you? He wouldn't look at you? No, he didn't look at me. He didn't smile at me and nothing, you know? So I, I, uh, <laughs> um, I thought, geez, I, I really blew my chance with Billy Joe, you know? Um, so years later, we're Cannonball, and we're playing Just, just Jazz in Philly. And, uh, I think this happened to me twice We at, at Just Jazz. We played their year apart with Cannon. And, and Philly Joe came and sat in. And Cannon, Cannon played, started playing a blue and blue and blue and boogie without counting it off at, at like this tempo. I got lost. I didn't know what the beat was. I was totally faking it through the whole tune. Can't, uh, 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 Philly Joe's not looking at me. He's not smiling. He's not giving me any help whatsoever. So my second shot with him, I blew. All right. A year later, he comes back. We played Just Jones again. He comes in and Cannon counts off uh, the blues. Nice medium tempo. Oh, no greater love. And there's a break at the end, you know, and I come in before Philly comes in. And I lead him all the way through the tune. And he's smiling at me and looking at me and we're interacting. And he had been waiting for me to take charge and do my own thing instead of sitting on his coattails. 
That was amazing. I have a recording of it. You do? Wow. Yeah. yeah. How do you have a recording of that? Because I had all those bootlegs from those two gigs that I told you about that film. How, how many shows is that? Two sets a night for two weeks. Jeez, you have, you have all of that transferred? Yeah. Fantastic, man. Yeah, yeah. That's important oh, stuff. That was my that was my Philly Joe experience, you know. So that's that's a lot of so who else is on that band? Uh Walter Booker, Roy McCurdy, Nat, and Ken. And uh, Roy McCurdy was a perfect drummer. And uh, they kicked my ass around for the first year. I was like a feather in a windstorm. Strongest rhythm section I ever played with. You know. But you came in before or after George Duke? After George Duke. It was, um, uh, uh, Robbie Timmons was playing after George. When I auditioned, I was living in New York. Bobby Cranshaw recommended me to Nat. Nat said they were looking for a piano player. They were playing a jazz workshop in Boston. Funny, I'm living in New York. So they flew me up there. They had rented me a hotel room to come up and audition. And Bobby was there. And he was not. And Bobby and I were good friends. I loved his playing. We, we loved each other's playing music. We, and he was in really bad shape. He's drinking cheap Chianti wine and stuff. So I, I auditioned there, strangely, in my own hometown. Uh, and all my old, quote unquote, acquaintances, <laughs> Those who didn't who didn't think shit about me and never never said anything to me, all of a sudden, hell yeah, man! You know, and I'm thinking, boy, you were jive then and you're jive now. You know, it doesn't make any difference that you like me now. <laughs> so I got the game. You know, that's fantastic. Yeah. You know, we recently lost Lee Konitz. Did you have any time with him where you talked about musical concepts or or time where you were just playing? We, we played together nine months duo at a club called Gregory's on 3rd Avenue and 69th Street. Wow. It was a small club. And then we went on the road and, uh, and uh, recorded Windows. Uh, we never talked about the music. Never? Never. So how was the material arrived at then? For playing it. So there were never a chart? No, we were just playing tunes. Playing tunes? Yeah. Or tunes that would go free? Yeah. Well, no, but it, you would think it was, but we were playing in tempo all the time. Although it was always, I tell you, this he was the most fun duo player I ever played duo with because it was always this close to falling apart, and it never did. It was just incredibly intense, you know. And I have just recently got... Uh, so, some bootleg recordings of me and Lee at Gregory's in the, in the 60s. Um, just got them last week. You know? From where? Uh, Gunther Schuller's son, George Schuller. Oh, nice. George, right on. Well, uh, he's also got some Herb Pomeroy big band stuff with me. George. He just sent it to me. Uh, um, uh, and I haven't gone through it yet. That, that's some of the earliest, early 60s, the gray area in terms of re recording, finding anything with me live on it. Yeah. So I haven't gone through those yet. He gave me copious notes on the tracks and all that stuff. 
That's fantastic, yeah. Hal. That's important it. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Did you work with Gunther Schuller at all? No, I didn't even know him. No? No, I never met him. I wasn't really much into that third street thing, you know. That didn't do anything for you? Why? Why not? Bebop! So you're like hard bopping and you don't want to know about that? That's right. Too dry? Too white? Look, it was. It has to do with what catches your interest, you know. What about Daffy's work there with Gunther? I, I'm not familiar with it. I didn't spend that much time listening to Third Stream. I was trying to learn bebop. <laughs> what did you think of Dolphy? He never convinced me. Is that right? I'm probably a, a majority of one on that, you know. <laughs> but he never, it's, it's not really good for you to ask me what I thought of different musicians. <laughs> oh, because you said earlier that you didn't, you and Sam didn't like anything. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I have a, I have a much better question for you. <laughs> what is forward motion? Um, It also has to do with one of the bar. Um, we're all taught backwards. And everybody thinks that ideas start on one of the bar. And, and you hear a lot of people who start their ideas on one of the bar. One of the, uh, this was, you know, I've just been thinking about this because it's gonna go in my, uh, uh, in the book. Um, you're going to have to, I'm going to take a, a little diversion here, but you're going to have to remember where we were to bring okay. it back. Okay. So when I was going to Berkeley at 57, 57 or 56, I remember walking down Newbury Street and I had two questions. Something about one, the, 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 the one beat was, Ask was uh, was a question mark. I thought something was going on with one I didn't know about. And uh, God, now I can't think of the second one. Uh, oh, the second question was, what am I supposed to be feeling inside when I'm playing? Now you have to understand, I didn't know anything in those days, nothing. So where did I get those two questions? I didn't have any enough experience to have asked those two questions, but they were important questions. The question about one ended up being the book Forward Motion 25, 30 years later. Um, and what's supposed to be going on inside ended up becoming process orientation, process oriented. But I didn't know anything about these. So the question becomes, how could I have come up with this? So I've got a theory now that I've worked out that when we're born, and that's DNA has something to do with it, when we're born, we have a certain number of, all our neural receptors are dormant. And the environment stimulates these neural receptors. So for instance, if you, uh, I always tell my, my students, uh, if you like a musician, it's not because you like him and that you're trying to play like him. 
you like a musician because he's trying to tell you something about you. Uh, my, my, my approach has been art is supposed to teach you something about yourself or give you an experience you never had before. I mean, that's its function. So if, if you're listening to Miles a lot, right, it's because your neural receptors are tuned that way, okay? So here you are, not knowing anything. Here I am, not knowing anything, but my neural uh, receptors, which have certain tendencies, shall we say, or predilections, but they're not filled in, they're not filled out, they're dormant until stimulation comes from the environment. So you hear, Ahmad Jamal play, it sets off your, your Ahmad Jamal receptors, you know, and, and, and so you're attracted to it. And there's this mutual attraction going on. That's how I came up with those two questions. And that's how we learn. Those, we all have these uh, tendencies and these receptors. Why do you play the way you play as opposed to why do I play the way I play? No two people have the same receptors. No two people hear the same way. No two people think the same way. So, and it kind it of- It is interesting how many people, let's say drummers, for instance, you hear and immediately feel who they are. Right. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And then they're trying to tell you something. Case in, case in point, I never, like I said, I never studied Bill Evans. But uh, in the year 2000, Todd Barkin, who used to run the Keystone Corner, sent me two CD sets, uh, Last Waltz and Consecration, 18 CDs of Bill Evans for two weeks at the Keystone Corner, two weeks before he died. Two sets a night, 18 CDs. They were brutal. I, I spent the summer listening to them. I couldn't finish listening to them. I got through about 16 CDs. He was, he was you know, Ahmad Jamal is, is, is my godfather as far as I'm concerned. But Bill knocked him off his chair on these CDs. Wow. And I, all of a sudden, I felt attracted to Bill. Now, I'd already come up uh, with this idea that it's it, the stimulation from the outside stimulates neural receptors, blah, blah, blah. And I, I felt uh, Bill's trying to tell me something. When I, when I feel that kind of a tug towards someone, I'm, I'm convinced that someone is trying to tell me something about me I didn't know. Okay, so I, I spent three years researching Bill, uh, dissertations, uh, transcriptions. I spoke with uh, every, everybody I knew who played with him, uh, everybody who hung with him, everybody I knew who took dope with him. Uh, uh, Try to find out what it was that Bill was trying to tell me. Um, so what I did is, he was dead at the time. What I did is I wrote a letter I did this with Ahmad too, in order to organize my thought. I wrote a letter to Bill, you know, and uh, I ended up uh, with three questions, you know. Uh, oh, that's, that's another part of this. Anyway, uh, finally, after going through all this stuff, I realized, I realized okay, I, I'm, not, not, I'm not interested in Bill's line playing. I'm happy with my line playing. And uh, I'm not interested in his rhythmic concept because I'm happy with my rhythmic concept. So then the bell went off. Oh, he's trying to tell me something. And it made me realize that a little voice in my head, starting probably in the time I left Phil, 1980, had been saying, Hal, 
your voicing suck. Doubled notes, not clear. He was telling me my voicing sucked and I had to get them together. And my that's little voice so said, yes, that's true. And I and then and then I ran, I, I finally came to the conclusion that he knew found out he, he knew counterpoint. He studied, he had learned counterpoint. Berkeley never taught counterpoint, which I think is criminal. Okay. He didn't? No. Oh, I had counterpoint at Rutgers and, and it really was important to me. Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, the whole idea was, you know, all notes in, in voicings have to move melodically, right? So, as a general rule. I, I right, mean, right. So, you have general rules that you can use in any situation. Yes, yes. So, um, I, I could, I mean, species counterpoint, they say it takes seven years to learn. I mean, I didn't have time to learn that, you know, uh, but I could, I could use the general concept. So, it's, I, I, I worked on that. I took a lot of notes out of my voicings. I could play three note voicings that sounded full, you know, um, and, and getting the, the melodic motion going wherever I could, finding all these passing lines, all that stuff. That's what Bill was telling me I had to get together. And it, and took, can me, I ask, it took me 10 years to get it together. Can I ask you, though, this is interesting to me because I always feel that, as I said earlier, pianists orchestrate. Mm -hmm. So is Bill responding to Debussy yeah. on, on, on one level at least? Yeah. Uh, Bill, what was interesting about these recordings is he always played the same arrangements. And someone once asked Eddie Gomez, how come you're playing, you know, uh, how come you play the same arrangements all the time? He said, because when we play, we play the arrangement. But then these are the solos open. The solos are open, but they're all based on the arrangement. So the the form is set in terms of how many cycles anybody gets of anything. No, no. But you can cue out of it to go to this arrangement. Your everything is done in terms of the arrangement. I tell my that's the only thing I tell the musicians I play with. If there's an arrangement, we're playing the arrangement. If there's hits in it, if there's this or that in it, if there's a break, we're playing the arrangement. That's a control factor that makes the music communicate better. You know? Well, so, it's satisfying for the audience to, to know that there are control factors. Exactly, and th they can hear the tune clearer and, and stuff like that. So I think that's a really uh, a stunning statement. You know, uh, we always, it's about the, uh, the concept is having a core idea. You have to have a core idea. That has to do with presentation as well, you know, and, uh, so the core idea in the in history was you play the arrangements. And he would play short tunes. I'm producing a Bill Evans album for uh, the Bottom Line Archive. Uh -huh. And it's uh, the 75 trio with Elliot Sigmund and Eddie Gomez. And it's a lot of tunes and they're short and they're clearly arranged. Yep. But it's it's like to me, you know, what's interesting about that, Hal, is like it's almost like chamber jazz. Uh, yes, it depends on what period. I got to tell you, these eighteen CDs, he was not playing it safe. But he's still orchestrating, right? All the time, and he and he, he never, he, he, you know, I in that letter I had three questions, if I can remember what they were. The first one was. Um, uh, how much of what he did was worked out ahead of time, you know? Yeah. Or second one was, 
did he just leave it up to intuition, you know? Uh, uh, and I forget what the third one is. Uh, but but, but did, did, did Eddie, you know, did you talk to Eddie? You talked to the different people that were still alive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not while they were alive, no. That's the, I would have asked Bill personally. He knew of my playing. He asked me to suffer him, for Christ's sake, you know? But uh, uh, all these questions occurred after he had passed, you know? But I mean, did you ever ask the guys that were in the trio if they knew that it was this worked out arrangement? Well, I didn't, but someone did. That's where I learned about, about that Eddie Gomez quote. You know? Yeah. Oh, it's obvious it's worked out. They, you can hear it, especially through these 18 CDs. You know, it's amazing. First and second set, great sound. Um, Joe LaBarbera and uh, the young boy on bass, you know. Oh, um, it's stunning, just just brutal for a piano to listen to. It's, it felt like he was getting all his shit in before he died, you know. That's what it felt like. Was it the same core group of songs every time? Hmm. A presentation. You have your set. Were you interested in his 12 tone tunes? No. I was interested in his voicing. So as a composer, not interested, but but you his comping is pretty remarkable too. Depends. What does that I, mean? Someone sent me, I think it was the Jazz at the Plaza album at, 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 at Newport with Miles with the sextet and Bill was playing piano. Now I, I had that original album. I, I love that album. Uh, especially for Paul Chambers, the way he played on My Funny Valentine. Hmm. It was just uh, amazing. Anyway, I got I got a track from that that wasn't on the original album. Um, what was the question again? I'm sorry, I, I tend to get off these days. What, what was Paul, uh, what was uh, Bill Evans doing in the mile? Oh, oh yeah, okay. So um, it's, he was playing... His comping, he was, he was being a bad boy. His comping did not fit in at all with what anybody was doing. He was really being bad boy uh, because I heard him comp with other people and be just unbelievably sensitive. But he, <laughs> he was not behaving himself on that track, I have to tell you, on those tracks. Uh, it was just so obvious. You know. Was he bored? Probably, you know, he, Coltrane pissed the rhythm sections off a lot because he wouldn't stop playing. You know. Coltrane would stop playing? He wouldn't. Why? Because he was working shit out. He just, he, Miles, he complained, you heard that story, he complained to Miles once and said, Miles said, stop playing so long. He said, I can't help it. He says, take it out of your mouth. <laughs> take your horn out of your mouth. Or Winton and, and Jimmy Cobb, they, I mean, he'd go on and on and on with sheets and sounds and all that stuff. Winton would stop playing. And then he'd come in and he'd play some loud banging, comping for a little while to try to get Trey's attention. You could hear all these signaling going on. The train was ignoring completely. they just going for what he was going for. He was so committed to um, the sheets of sound thing, you know. He was so committed to finding it. His, Something was pulling him in that direction. A neural network was uh, pulling him in that direction. You know, it was firing off signals to to 
uh, doing sheets of something. That was, a, I mean, he was going somewhere with that, you know, and he, he wanted to follow it. Well, how many, how important was it that many of you guys were checking out Eastern philosophy and expanding your minds and your consciousness to become a better person and a better artist? Well, I was, I came up in the 60s. Man. I, I did everything in the 60s you were supposed to do in the 60s. Tell me about that, please. Well, you know, especially a lot of psychedelics. Um, and I got to the point where uh, I realized uh, that's kind of personal. I don't know how much I want to talk about it. Uh, but I came to the conclusion that things that look separate are, are an illusion, that everything is connected. The problem is we can't see the connection. Uh, there are no isolated events. Everything is connected. Uh, everything is one. And, and I, firmly, I still believe that 100%. Uh, for instance, uh, my case in point, Mike Brecker always used to talk about time and tone, you know, and I thought they were two different things until I realized they were two different aspects of the same thing. They weren't two different things. They were two aspects of one thing. And everything is connected. So just be, it's a problem of stance. Where do you stand? What's your POV at the moment? You can change your POV. You can just take two steps to the left and your whole POV changes, right? At least visually. Well, Les called it freedom of orientation in the music. Yeah, yeah I guess so. I don't know. But, I like uh, that idea. Yeah, and so you can't, because we have, we're not God, we only have our one single point of view, we have to shift points of views. You know, uh, so now I see everything. When I see, see uh, two opposites, I I, I, uh, I I always assume they're they're parts of a whole that I have haven't discovered yet, and I'm just seeing two aspects of, of the whole idea. I'm I'm absolutely convinced of that from my trips and everything. I mean, I I felt the connection. You know, I saw the connection. Everything is connected. It's only our ego that separates us from that. You know, I, you could take it back to to the to the Bible. You know, to the, to the first. If you can look at the at the Garden of Eden scenario as taking millennia to actually actually happen, right? But if you if it's 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 basically a condensed version of billions of years. All right. So here we are in the Garden of Eden. What that means is no ego. We're like the animals. We are feeling part of everything. They don't feel separated from their realities. They are part of it. But then you came along and the frontal lobe grew larger and larger, and you started to question. And then the snake in the tree came along, and you bit of the apple, and that was it. You were kicked out of, of that frame of reference, and now you feel separated from nature. But let me ask you. A that, was God's, that was God's penalty for, for eating the apple. You're, Understood. You're, but, but you also have a quote on your website that I find very interesting, that the inner world is the greatest of frontiers. And is that just a form of extreme narcissism that we're witnessing? Or is that something that's going to benefit the world? 
Well, that's a good question. And, and I'll tell you, uh, most artists have to have big egos in order to carry out what they do. You have to believe in yourself. Yeah. Ask me that question again, because I got a better answer. Good. Okay. That's, that's so me. so what is what is the importance of of going and searching the inner world oh, of the artist? Uh, we I, I, you saw my lecture. Uh, we are you are the instrument. Yes, that's it. We spend our lives in a subjective state. That's the state we're in. Any artist, no matter what the art is, that we're living in subjective states now. One could say, well, you're egotist, you know, you're always thinking about yourself, but we are the instrument. You know, the piano's not the instrument, the saxophone's not the instrument. Everything that we are learning and training are internal processes that we're developing. So we are the instrument. And we and the subjective life of a musician uh, is, uh, is where we live. That's where we're doing all the work. In the in the uh, limbic system and the, uh, uh, the alligator brain, all this. that's the only part of the brain that can do uh, billions, make billions of decisions within a subdivision of a nanosecond. You know, that's that that's the part of the brain that does all the processing and 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 where the intuition is, where fight or flight, uh, friend or foe, all of that stuff. That's the basis of of all art down there, that's where instinct, reaction time, you know, intuition. You know, when you when you get that little voice in your head as you're leaving the house and says, take your umbrella, you know, and it's shining outside and you say, nah, you know, but your lower brain has been processing all this information, God knows where, and they sent up a little message to you. You know, they knew something. Your intuition knows something you didn't know. So it's never wrong. I've had that little voice is never wrong. No, I know, Al. I've had very serious intuitive events throughout my entire life from childhood to now. Because you plug into a certain thing. I mean, once you're, I feel like it's in for a penny and for a pound. Like if you're in for creative exploration, you're going to this other area now where you're you're sort of toying with different energies and things that right. you know not much about. Right. And I can't help feeling there's always been like I dream a piece, write it down and my trio could play it. And, you know, my dream life and my intuitive life was something I was very comfortable with trading with in terms of what I thought was good stuff. Like pieces that you wrote in a trance or pieces you don't re remember writing or uh, you know, any intuitive event that happened playing music with people where you hit together, right? Where you're somehow linked psychically in a trio. Seems like trios do it best. I don't know about, about you, but I feel like three. More, the more instruments, the less piano. Well, that's true. And if you want a lot of piano, which I do, you have to definitely make sure there's a lot of piano that can be heard. Yeah. And yeah, and I feel like... Um, that's when you're in the zone, right? When you can create and you can hear the cycles and you can hear and predict things in a way and if in here into the future. Yes. And is that the same zone as composing? 
playing music, improvising and composing are all decision-making processes. A and B. That's all the brain has. A and B. That's it. So, for instance, if you listen to a, there's a, there's an A, there's, there are things that show up in the music. It's, it's, I tell you, I, I'm either going mad or I'm really, I'm really onto something with the, with this new book. Um, but, oh, I forgot what I was going to say again. I have to apologize for that. I lose a train of thought too easy. Um, what are, what are you working on these days, Hal Galbert? Oh, uh, <laughs> not anything. I I'm uh, I'm in a funny position because uh, I don't have I, I I've I've done it all, and I thought it I think well, uh, and there's no place for me to go now. I've done it. I've done everything. And with with uh, with Cubist and the Zone, um, you know, if I try to do anything, I'm going to be in competition with, my, with myself. Some, Bill Evans talked about that. He, said, he says I feel like I'm in competition in, in competition with myself against the Vanguard album, or you know, and every every album you, you know, last the last album you made is always your most favorite. But mm. Bill Bill felt like he was in competition with himself all the time. Luckily, I don't have that. I, I'm not Bill Evans, and I never achieved the levels he did. So I, I ain't worried about that, you know. But, well, I, but I, I, you know, there's no, I've, I've done it all. I've written all kinds of music. I've played with so many masters, so many great musicians. And, and, and you know, I, I really have no other place to go. You know? So I don't know what, I have nothing to work with. I just, now I just got uh, getting my chops warmed up in case I, got a gig and I just go to the gig and I have some fun you know like that's what I usually do anyway you know no presentation is anything happening at the deer head anymore yeah yeah they're doing some things uh um I uh, you know I I didn't draw there so they won't hire me anymore I don't draw anyway but uh they don't hire me anymore well that doesn't make sense to me Hal Galper I think that you're a force in the music yeah, but I don't draw. And that doesn't mean that your your shit isn't heavy because it's it's certainly heavy on some. I don't I don't, take, I don't take it as a reflection of my music. I take it as a reflection of my lack of marquee value, which I could care less. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I never I never cared about that. You know, I never cared about getting a name. My ego doesn't need that. My ego's fine. You know, I don't need that. To feel good about myself, yeah. <laughs> well, but you know, guys like you really have had an impact on guys like me. Really, and that's and that's something that that time and time again I see you in there with guys like Liebman and and Randy Brecker and all of the different cats from Free to the Bop guys to Electric. To, you've covered so much ground. I couldn't say it any better than you just did. But it's true. And all the different genres and all the different levels of control that you've explored throughout the music is is what I'm doing on my little journey too. Yeah. Is because guys like you are like, this is what we do. We check out different levels of control, genre, feelings, emotions, right? Uh, right. And you have you have to like experience the world that way. It changed right. my life in terms of how I experienced the world because I wasn't interested in one thing. Yeah. 
right? So the way you guys have done that, it's has inspired me and so many other guys. I just want you to know that. Oh, and that's super important. Well, I, the only opinion I care about are my peers' opinion. You know, my ego, my ego likes that part of it. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, you know, I'm a historian. So, like, I know how things connect up. And I know, you know, so much of the stuff that you've done. You know, when, when you heard my trio, you commented that we had similar interests in terms of how we were dealing with the time and dealing with subdivisions and rhythms and things. Yeah. And we didn't call it rubato. That was what you were calling it. And it turns out we were talking about the same type of thing, which for me is like um, multi, I call it multi-tiered rhythm. So I really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat. It's really been a great pleasure, Hal. Always a pleasure. Are we done? <laughs> well, we certainly can be. I feel like we've covered a lot. And yeah. uh, it's been a, it's been uh, very intense. <laughs> it always is with you. Uh, well, at least I didn't spill any secrets. No. Well, I think you were very you behaved very nicely, and people should go to www.halgalper.com and you can find out all about the master there. There's a lot of great writings on there. I highly recommend checking out Hal's site for all kinds of great musical content. He is a consummate educator. He communicates very high concepts in a very down to earth way. So I highly recommend it. Um, I'm learning all the time from Hal Galper. Uh, Professor, uh, thank you. Oh, uh, my pleasure, man. It's nice to, it's nice to, uh, to hear that. Yeah. Well, you put out so much there. I mean, we didn't even get into the concept of displacing rhythms, but I, I don't know, like how how technical we can get here. Well, but let me you tell you. Covered it. Let me tell you what I discovered. There's a thing called the tuplet machine. Have you seen that? Yeah. That's an That's what we're doing. Somebody yeah. made a machine to be able to figure out how to do what we're doing. That's this is I I never knew that you know until I. I found it. We're playing tuplets, you know. It is tuplets. That's true. And how many big? How big? How many big ones? How many little ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and shape is huge. Yes, and, shape and is so primary. Funny. Shape is primary. Before notes, and this is that's I'm that's I'm starting to write my section on shape uh, because that goes at the top of the priorities. First priority, tone. Second priority, shape. No, tone, rhythm, shape, notes. Notes are last. That's Not interesting, that. yeah. And shape, I can take, you can take a shape that you played on Sweet and Lovely, on the changes of Sweet and Lovely, and just transfer the shape to, to uh, giant steps. You just have to match the notes to the, to the changes, that's all. So a shape is transferable. It's like a universal mime, meme, you know, yeah. that you can use sound. anywhere. You can use it anywhere. It's so true. And it, it drives pieces. For me, I have pieces that are so clearly based upon shape. Yeah. And, I'm, and you know, you, you accept it because I don't know. You know where I thought shape was cool was in, um, in Gradinger 
on the City of Glass, the Kenton. Do you know that stuff? Yeah. Haven't really heard it in decades, yeah. Do you remember hearing that and thinking about shapes? No, I didn't get into thinking about shapes till I was working on the coal train. Oh, really? No. No. Yeah, I always feel like the, the architecture. Shapes, shapes, patterns, shapes and patterns. That's what Coltrane said in the interview. Shapes and patterns. That's what he practiced. Oh, shapes and patterns, he said. Yeah. He didn't say cells, you, you no, said? patterns. Oh, cool. That's some trains playing. Is that what Bach was doing? Shape is very important in Bach. Shape has always been important. That's what keeps things interesting. And it's only A and B. It's either up or down. Right? There's a, there's a, I'll leave you with this, all right? And you can check it out for yourself about what creates the improvised event. All right? The brain is a pattern thing, correct? It looks for patterns. So if you play A and then play A again, the predictive part of the brain is expecting you to play A a third time. But if you play B after the first two A's, you disrupt the pattern. You create tension. The brain, the brain, the body, human body, always seeks equilibrium no matter what happens to it. So this problem has to be solved, okay? So it's where the creativeness, so you make up, you improvise a solution to resolve that tension. Now you listen to the solos and you hear people go, A-A-B. It has some effect on the brain. I haven't figured it out yet. It takes, it's gonna need the neurologist to figure it out. But by breaking the pattern and creating this tension, the brain has to find a solution and it works within, I don't know if you're familiar with complex adaptive systems and all that stuff, but uh, you'll see it in the book. That's, that's how improvised, you'll listen to all the players now, when you listen to a record, how many times they do A, A, B. Once you do A, A and you start B, B takes off somewhere else all the time. It's like a, 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 a jumping board, you know? Well, and the importance of coming back to A can't be on, you know. Uh, and you don't value. come back to A. You do two, some later on, you do two different A's and get a B. You'll, you need to the records now, the B-Bobbers, anybody, everybody does this. Even I was doing it and I didn't know it. I didn't know it. How could I be doing that? And I didn't know it. Well, some, somebody, something down there deep figured it out before I became aware of it. You know what I mean? We're down there in the limbic system. Yeah. So with A and B, you can come up with a lot of shit. That's what, I mean, they built the computer on A and B. Zero, one. Yep. Yeah. So Thanks, you, Hal. All right, man. So I'll much play. to think about and, and do listen to Hal Galper's music because that's where it's all happening. Ah, all right. Yeah, I'll be right. listening to it. I always go a deep dive. I can't get to all your stuff, Hal. There's too much stuff. <laughs> I'm serious, man. All the stuff just with Cannonball and Phil, but all your original stuff, all your band. So HalGalper.com. And we are here every week on Fridays with new episodes of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to my guest who has been 
the great Hal Galper, elder statesman of the jazz music. Mostly elder. But statesman <laughs> no, nonetheless. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.